This message is a recording from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space to practice the ways of Jesus together as the multi-ethnic family of God. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Erin. My pronouns are she, her. Um, well, on Tuesday night, Kendall and I were invited to go to dinner with a good friend of his named Adam Thomason. And uh, to give you a little background about Adam, he's a black pastor, writer, justice theologian in his own right. Um, he studied fashion. He's played professional basketball overseas, produced numerous award-winning documentaries. He's an avid reader, a brilliant mind. I told Kendall, I don't fangirl over a lot of people. But for some reason, Adam was one of those people that I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I finally get to meet this man in person. Because for ever since I moved here, I've heard so much about him. So so anyways, being at dinner with him was such an amazing experience because for me, he affirmed and fanned the flame of a courageous spirit within me, um, and I'm going to preach for, with that energy. So I think I'm going to start naming the energy that I'm going to preach with before I do it, like get in that rhythm. So anyways, I'm coming with that energy tonight, okay? So um, I'd like to begin our time with the land acknowledgement to honor the Native people that existed here before us, this land that we dwell upon today, Grace Lutheran Church in downtown. Phoenix is the ancestral land of the Thana Otham Nation. We acknowledge their historical roots in this place and the many generations who were stewards of this land before it was stolen from them. So over the last several weeks leading up to the season of Advent, we've been preaching from the homilies of Oscar Romero and the corresponding lectionary passages along with it. So to give you some quick background about Romero, if you haven't been following along, in 1917, Oscar Romero was born into a family of 10 on August 15th. That's my birthday, so that's kind of cool. Um, in El Salvador. And so his father was in charge of a local telegraph office, and sometimes the young Romero helped his father to deliver telegrams. Oscar even learned to be a carpenter, making tables, chairs, and doors. In 1930, when he was 14 years old, he wanted to be a priest, so he went on to study at a junior seminary. When his mother was ill and they needed money for medicine, Oscar left the seminary for three months and worked in a gold mine. He earned about four pesos a day. In 1937, Romero went to Rome at the age of 21 to study and stayed there during World War II. Unfortunately, both his father and brother died while he was in Rome. In 1974, violence increased in El Salvador as the government and army began killing people, poor people who stood up for their rights. When the army killed three people in the village of Tres Calas, Romero comforted the families and wrote to the president to protest about the murders. In 1977, Romero became Archbishop of San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador. Some rich people were happy because they thought he would stop priests from helping the poor to stand up for their basic rights. But a few weeks later, his friend, Father Rutilio Grande, was shot and killed along with two companions. The following Sunday, Romero allowed only one mass in the whole diocese at the, cathedral, where, where, at the cathedral where he spoke out against the murders. This was a significant moment in the life of Oscar Romero. Then from 1977 to 1980, Romero continued to speak out as the violence of El Salvador continued. And every Sunday, his sermon was broadcasted by radio. 
So now that you have a bit of context, I'd like to read to you a portion from one of his homilies spoken on April 9th, 1978. He says, a Christian's authenticity is shown in difficult hours. By Christian, I mean every member of God's people, whether a lay person, religious, priest, bishop, or pope. And by difficult hour, I mean those circumstances in which following the gospel supposes a multitude of ruptures with the tranquility of an order that has been set up against or apart from the gospel. I call it a difficult hour because it is very hard to live in it as a genuine follower of the only Lord. It is much easier to keep on following the many easy lords set up as idols of the moment, money, power, prestige, and so on. How easy is it then to make religion a lovely fantasy created from a false interpretation of the gospel or of the church's teaching? Those adorers of idols even go so far as to disparage with slanderous and pernicious criticism those who have the courage to remind them of the true interpretation of Christ's teaching and of their need for conversion. And so conflict arises. There is talk of confusion. The blame for the disorder is put on subversive sermons. Attempts are made to isolate the voice that cries out in the name of the Lord. The, the church's teaching power is likened to a popular democracy, as though the number of those who speak were worth more than the rightness of what is said. And it is forgotten that mediocrity will always be majority and the courage of authenticity minority. Recall the wide way and the narrow way of the gospel. How necessary in this difficult hour is a conscious docile to the Lord's truth. In this difficult hour more than ever is the need for prayer united with a genuine will to be converted. Prayer that out of intimacy with God cuts one off from the confused clamor of life's shallow expediencies. A will to be converted that is not afraid to lose prestige or privilege or to, do, or to change a way of thinking when it is seen that Christ insists on a new way of thinking more in keeping with his gospel. I believe, Romero says, that for our archdiocese, if I said that word right, a difficult hour is here and is putting to test the Christian authenticity of all of us who make up this local church. We should not be surprised then that it is a test of authenticity. Not all that glistens is gold. But at the same time, we should intensely rejoice that this moment of Christian hazard is revealing that we have much fine metal, which comes out of the crucible with greater excellence, end quote. What I love most about this homily from Oscar Romero is that he speaks plainly of the confusion that arises when you have a group of people spouting a gospel that doesn't match the gospel that Jesus himself lived and spoke. He calls this a difficult hour because there is an existence of people who follow Jesus mixed with a group of people who instead follow money, power, and prestige. They know that the Lord and Savior Jesus stands with the oppressed and marginalized, so they worship idols but call it preaching a gospel, all the while convincing listeners to see those at the center as marginalized and those at the margins as the center. 
I got that from Jessica Pope at book club. This is a difficult hour. Romero also speaks of something called a conversion. The point at which we let go of idols, power, money, and prestige, and instead embrace the life and work of Jesus in its purest form. Romero's own conversion happened after his best friend was murdered. A moment in time when his body, mind, and voice were aligned. He felt in his body what he knew in his mind of history and their present-day reality, and his mouth could no longer deny how Jesus meets us here. He could no longer be silent about the things that were happening. What do you do with that? Did the injustice exist before his best friend was murdered? Or did his conversion simply open his eyes to see the injustice that was there all along? Did the gospel for the oppressed exist before his best friend was murdered? Or did his conversion simply open his eyes to see what Jesus has been talking about all along? Did the gospel change or were his eyes simply opened? What opened his eyes? And friends, I ask us, what opens our eyes? I find it fascinating to think about the type of preacher he was before his friend was murdered. Before his friend was murdered, he was content to preach things that kept the rich happy, to preach things that kept his life out of danger, to preach things that kept the people in power and government happy with him, for that is the very reason why he was originally selected anyway. But in his moment of conversion with prophetic force, it was like he said, to hell with the idols, to hell with the money and the power and prestige. I cannot deny that Jesus meets all people in the here and now. There was a series of moments leading up to a conversion in the life of Oscar Romero. But as Michael Jackson cried out, what about us? What opens our eyes? And what keeps our eyes closed? What opens up the eyes of other people we know? And what keeps their eyes closed? My husband wrote an article called, It's Time to Liberate the Gospel, covering three attributes of Western society that have caged or attempted to tame the meaning of the gospel that we preach today. It's honestly the best I could find. I know I probably sound biased, but he gave me his permission to read some of it to you today. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon stated the gospel is like a caged lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose from its cage and the lion will defend itself. We have put the Bible's gospel in a cage in our time, relinquishing its power to bless others and give others the freedom to live out their God-given purpose. I'm guilty of allowing this to happen in my own story. So what is it in culture that's been caging and oppressing the gospel? In this post, Kendall writes, I want to focus on the Western world's value of whiteness, individualism, and rationalism suppression of the gospel. Whiteness is caging the gospel. White is right, or at least that's what's been the narrative of Western culture. History matters, and what we can learn from history is how European colonization, specifically in the Western world, has set cultural norms and defined what is right and true. This has caused the gospel to be narrated and interpreted through one lens from the majority who is in power. 
Whiteness has used the Bible and gospel to enslave Africans and to terrorize indigenous people. The gospel needs to be set free. For the last few centuries, the gospel has been confused with the white dominant culture. Sadly, today, when people think of living out the gospel, they think of living out white culture. For many in the United States, the gospel is tied to the dominant white culture in the United States. White leaders have governed the Western world and ordered its systems and structures, which makes minority behavior outside of the norm of society. This means for many minorities, conforming to the gospel is synonymous with conforming to whiteness. Individualism is caging the gospel. Individualism in our culture has led us to seek what it is that we can gain from the gospel personally. This has led many people to only hear and focus on the personal salvation aspect of the gospel. People cling to whatever removes the personal guilt we feel about ourselves and the shameful actions we commit. However, a self-serving gospel is no good news at all. When the focus of the gospel is solely on being saved from our individualized sin, then there is no room to bring justice and health to systems and institutions. Even though there are individual aspects to the gospel, individuality's high emphasis in culture has caused the gospel to be reduced as if you were only to look at one side of a jewel without beholding the entire diamond. And that's exactly what Chris spoke about to us last week. Kendall goes on to write, An individualized gospel traps the whole gospel and puts an overemphasis on individual sin, making you far from and how Jesus' death allowed you to be good with God. A true holistic gospel will push someone to discover how they make their faith more an individualized matter, but search for ways they can be a blessing to those around them, especially those who are in the margins of society. Rationalism is caging the gospel. The beginning of the, of the Enlightenment had made the scientific method and rationalism God in our time. This has influenced us to rationalize the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and search for one conclusive answer on its implications. Rationalism has led theologians to create theories on atonement that try to sum up what the gospel is. This has left little room for mystery concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Not everything about Jesus destroying the evil forces of darkness through his death and resurrection can be rationalized and clearly explained. Jesus' act is surely the climax of history, and much of its implication is still shrouded in mystery, and that is okay. Much of what I mentioned, the values of whiteness, individualism, and rationalism caging the gospel is deeply embedded within our society and the framework of Christianity many of us have been given. Perhaps the cage is more enclosed than we could have ever imagined. So to let the gospel roam free in your life may take constant chipping away at the gate of the cage the gospel may be held in for you. For me, Kendall writes, constant criticism of my own bias influenced by society's values and viewing the meaning of the gospel in its historical context has brought freedom and passion in my own life. People who are free and experience freedom have an opportunity to free others, and that is how the gospel spreads.
Kendall, you are a phenomenal writer. With that in mind, let me ask you this question. If whiteness is caging the gospel, what is your line of tolerance for white supremacy? Did you know that out of the current 200 nations in the world, the British have invaded all but 22 of them? Did you ever think about why after Britain invaded North America in the 16 and 1700s and eventually declared independence in 1776, we separated ourselves from dictatorship, but we never told the people who colonized us to actually get out? Which tells me there's a difference between freedom and dictatorship and the colonization of a country versus freedom from the colonization of a mind, spirit, and soul. Even today, every part of our being is still being influenced consciously or subconsciously by white supremacy that invaded North America in the 1600s. The reason why I ask, what is your line of tolerance for white supremacy, is because this nation's very birth was conceived with stolen land and white supremacy. Even in the way we practice our faith, we are still coming up against the colonization of mind and spirit fighting against dominance and control, and trying to sort through white supremacy's interpretation of scripture, which upheld over 400 years of slavery and free labor on stolen land. So what is your line of tolerance? Now, if you're familiar with the black community, you may or may not have heard the saying, ten toes down, which simply means I'm solid in my perspective, I said what I said, what I said, what I said, and ain't nobody going to change it. Even if you think I'm all the way wrong, I'm still ten toes down. Amen. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me. Now, if you know about Kendall, um, well, if you didn't know, actually, Kendall and I have been taking martial arts lessons twice a week don't ask me to spar because I still don't know what I'm doing, but Kendall is a third degree black belt if you didn't know. So don't also mess with me because he will whip your butt. Okay. <laughs> I am getting better though. But once a week, our grandmaster actually guides us through something called Qigong, which is a slow movement exercise developed in China thousands of years ago as part of a traditional Chinese medicine. It involves using slow exercise to optimize energy within the body, mind, and spirit with the goal of improving and maintaining health and well-being. While doing this practice, our grandmaster talked about the, import the importance of scrunching your toes down into the earth while you do qigong because it is a form of rooting yourself to the energy that is supplied in the earth. So when I say 10 toes down in this sermon, I'm not just saying be forceful in perspectives that provide dignity for all people, but I'm also saying be rooted in the history that the dust of the earth provides. Be rooted in the history of your ancestors. Let the stories of truth and our lived experiences provide energy to stand 10 toes down in the perspective of a gospel that you know to be true. So will you stand 10 toes down and be an embodied witness of conversion for those whose eyes have not yet been opened? Will you stand 10 toes down and tell white supremacy to get out? 
to get out of your mind, your perspective, the way you make decisions, censoring the way you talk, the way you carry yourself? Will you tell white supremacy to get out of the way you care for yourself? Now, I'm not saying that white people must get out because we exist as a multi-ethnic community with plenty of white people here, as you can see. But what I am saying is that if we are to exist as the multi-ethnic family of God, the system of whiteness and colonization, which gave birth to the system of individualism, which gave birth to the system of rationalization, has to get out and be converted into a way of love that Jesus exemplified, that sees all people, embraces all people, and meets all people in the here and now. As Dr. King said to a black audience in the civil rights movement, I come here tonight to plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. I said to a group last night, nobody can do this for us. No document can do this for us. Not even an emancipation proclamation can do this for us. Nor can a Johnsonian civil rights bill do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink on self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. And what I am saying to you today, multi-ethnic family of God who practices the ways of Jesus together, we are present here in the oldest church in downtown Phoenix, Phoenix, sitting in a sanctuary with pews that seat at times both white and black, Asian and Pacific Islander, Puerto Rican and Mexican, Guatemalan and African. Will you dig deep into the inner resources of your own soul and sign with pen and ink that you will not go back to bowing down to white supremacy? In the spaces you occupy, will you with prophetic force push back against the line of tolerance for white supremacy? Somebody say 10 toes down. Luke 24, 13 through 35 is the corresponding lectionary passage to Oscar Romero's homily, which we read earlier tonight. And Michelle Beth Dinker summarizes it very well. This story offers a glimpse of Jesus and his disciples after the first Easter. The story begins with two of Jesus' followers on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. One is named Cleopas and the other is not named and might be his wife. It is no accident that the first place the risen Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Luke is on a road. Suddenly, Jesus appears on the road and asks, what are you discussing with each other while you're walking along? And what Cleopas and his companion are discussing is the news, specifically political news. Jesus has just been crucified, and in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was deeply political. Like many today, Cleopas and his companion have lost hope in the face of this political news. He declares in the past tense, we had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They have heard that Jesus' tomb is empty, but they do not believe it. And they spoke with great sadness discussing these things and continued to walk. And so we pick it up in their conversation in verse 18. 
The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us, for they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us what they had indeed seen, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things about himself and the scriptures as he walked with them along the road. As they came near to the village where they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going to go on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us on the road while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. What I love most about this passage is that in the height of political confusion, disappointment, and despair, Jesus's place of conversion is at the table. He takes his time with people who do not recognize him, though he was standing there with him. At first, he's playful and pokes fun that they don't see him standing there. But he keeps walking with them and he keeps telling them the truth. Then he walks ahead of them and they ask him to stay and eventually get to a house for dinner. And they sit at a table. Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to them, and then they finally see. There is something that happens when you eat the same bread drink the same wine, and sit at the same table, for it equalizes all those who are present, and that atmosphere that's created allows eyes to be opened that we all might be able to see. The very Jesus they were speaking of was with them the whole time, but it was at the table that they could finally see Jesus for who he really was. At Kaleo, we know that Jesus ate and drank his way through the Gospels. And as his followers, we are invited to follow this example by gathering around tables. Before meeting in sanctuaries, church buildings, or cathedrals, followers of Jesus met in homes around tables, practicing the ways of Jesus by eating and drinking together. A shared table 
is a shared life, and a shared life is an invitation for eyes to be open to see and be converted to a way of love, the cornerstone of community. As the band comes up, will you close your eyes with me and take a deep breath? Sometimes you just have to breathe to process the things you've heard. And just ask the Lord, what do you want me to know tonight? What do you want me to do with the things that I've heard? Just take a moment. And imagine yourself in that story. Imagine that you've walked a long time on this journey, perplexed by political news, awaiting the presence of a redeemer and deliverer. You see Jesus with you, but you don't recognize him. But then you get to the table and everything changes. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for being with us and patiently revealing yourself to us even when we cannot see. We ask that you would help us be an embodied witness for others who cannot see just as well. Amen. If this message encouraged you, let us know or share it with someone you know. For more information about Kaleo, visit kaleophx.com or follow us on social media at kaleophx.